It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is May the 16th in 2023, and my guest is Jonathan Hillis. John is the founder of Cabin. Cabin is building a network city, a collection of remarkable co-living properties tied by a shared culture, community, economy, and governance. Today, we're going to learn more about Cabin, a major project in the space of new cities and network states. John is a deep thinker, so we'll use our, our conversation as a starting point to discuss Balaji Srinivasan's network state more. John also expressed critique against some of my conceptualizations of the space that I'm expressing here very often on this podcast. So we'll discuss those as well as some of his own mental models to better understand the sort of nascent and emerging space and different approaches we can take. John, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me and for that uh, kind introduction. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed visiting you in the Hill Country. Can you describe for listeners a bit how, how it looks like there where, you, where you're living right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sitting in one of our cabins where I live out at Neighborhood Zero, um, which is a cabin neighborhood, uh, our first one outside of Austin, Texas. And we're about 45 minutes west of Austin out in the Hill Country on 28 acres, free that runs through the property, some rolling hills at the Hill Country, some grasslands and forests, some longhorn cattle running around, living community that you've been building out here at a couple of cabins, as well as other amenities like sauna, outdoor gathering area where we come together to live and create. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, noteworthy, the Longhorn cattle. What are their two names? And, yeah. So when Nicholas was out here, he was excited to meet uh, our two pet Longhorn uh, cattle. One is named Vitalik uh, Muterin. And the other one is named CAO, CAO for Centralized Autonomous Organism. Both of them, of course, were named by our community, as well as a, a third Longhorn uh, named Isterium, uh, who, who was not on the property when you were there. Fantastic. So you have our listeners sort of imagining now like a very pleasant hillside, cabins, creators, campfires, and co-working, co-living, and, and Longhorn cattle. John, what else would you like listeners to know about you and your background? How did you get to start Kevin? I feel very fortunate to have a lot of threads of my life that have come together in Cabin. Thinking back to the first job I ever wanted as an architect before I, I found out you have to like go to school for, for decades and do all sort of apprenticeships and like spend a decade designing um, bathroom stalls for office buildings. If, if you want to be like a licensed architect, turns out you don't have to do any of that. You can just go to an unincorporated area and start building things. <laughs> and uh, so it took a bit of a different path there, but, you know, had always uh, been inspired by time in nature, spent a lot of time in the Boy Scouts as a kid, read Thoreau's. Walden and some of uh, Edward Abbey's works about uh, the American wilderness at a formative age. And you know, around uh, college time, discovered crypto for the first time. My college roommate showed me Silk Road and, and Bitcoin. What really drew me in was that in college, I'd studied political science um, and environmental studies and was particularly interested in 
uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work on collective action problems and trying to understand how small groups might be able to overcome them using different approaches than the kind of historical canon of, of political theory. At the time, it wasn't very easy to run governance experiments. And all of a sudden, there are these great new tools for, you know, collectives online to to run self-sovereign governance experiments. And um, so, you know, I originally, my, my first startup was an online community that was sort of like a an attempt at kind of a token gated thing before you could really properly use tokens for gating in 2014. Turned out nobody wanted that at the time. And so I went and got a, a, a real job at uh, Instacart where I spent six years and, and was ultimately a product director, got pretty burnt out on web two, decided that I wanted to move out to the woods and write some science fiction and build a cabin and, you know, live my, my Thorovian daydream and invite some internet friends out. And as I started writing some science fiction about it, you know, started conceptualizing this idea of a network city and ultimately uh, got together with, with a group of folks from the internet to start a DAO called Cabin. Did you write some of the science fiction? I did. I never published any of it. Eventually, I would like to get back to that. You know, I think I I wrote, I don't know, maybe a couple of tens of thousands of words, but uh, it turns out I'm not, I'm, I'm no Neil Stevenson, uh, but I figured I could at least try to build something along the lines of what I was writing. And yeah, the kind of fun part about that is I think the act of building um, helps develop your ideas much better than just sitting around thinking about things that um, so my aspiration is as the DAO grows and, you know, and, and continues to progressively decentralize and hopefully uh, needs me less and less in the coming years and decades, that eventually I'll be able to get back to the science fiction writing with hopefully a little bit, um, you know, better ideas and better prose. And it's definitely still on my personal long-term roadmap to publish something. Yeah, because it's on mine too. I feel like there's this commonality between many people in our space, right? So that people in my podcast that started their business because they read about something in a Neil Stevenson novel. I myself was thinking about seasteading on a hike way before I heard about it, right? Wow. So I was, in, I was actually starting the outline, I think it was 10 or 15 pages for a three-part novel, right? Where people would move to the C2C part instead of um, to Mars or to other planets. Spot war, so wild. Something to be said about having sort of the vivid imagination to to end up doing the th the kinds of things that we do, right? Definitely, yeah. I think it's almost every um, you know uh, founder is is in some way inspired by science fiction, and so um, yeah, I think if you want to have the it's it the the broadest impact, you you either have to try to build the future or uh, you know write a really compelling vision of it in some way. What was your thinking process and how did it evolve over time? You said you already started in 2014 with online communities. And so how did the first version of Cabin look versus how does it look now? And where's your vision at at this moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually spent a lot of time in online communities before that. Most of my middle school and high school years, I was a pretty nerdy kid and, you know, spent a lot of time on like, uh, the, the kind of earliest versions of, um, dig and then Reddit and hacker news when all those things were first coming out. And th those were definitely big inspirations for me as well. The thing I tried to do in 2014, it was just a, it was basically an online community that you had to pay, um, to access via this like bonding curve. And it, it just was too complicated and crazy. And like, everybody was on Facebook at that point and like, nobody wanted to pay for it. So. Um, that, that was a good lesson in like, you know, how, um, like grand ideological visions of, of consumer products don't always meet the reality of consumer needs. Um, and, and so there were definitely some good lessons there, but, uh, I, I think the, the first, you know, inklings of cabin in its actual proper current form started, um, I, I just recently found a journal entry from a trip that I took to um, Thailand in 2019. I was pretty burnt out at the time at Instacart and my uh, boss, um, you know, the, the chief product officer at Instacart, this guy named David Hahn, who's probably the best manager I've ever had, um, just looked at me and he's like, dude, you're super burnt out. You need to just like literally leave next week and go sit on a beach somewhere for a month and think about what you want to do with your life. Um, and I was like, no, I can't do that. Like there's so much I have to do here. And he's like, it'll be fine. Just go, uh, you know, and I did. And I went and found this little tiny Island called Konai and just sat there on the beach and, 
you know, read um, a bunch of books and thought about things, wrote all the possible five-year plans and um, explored different paths. And one of those paths was, you know, essentially what, what uh, ended up becoming Cabin. And I, I think at the time it seemed like this kind of far off fantasy dream looking back on it now uh four years later it's like oh wow actually that that's uh, more or less what we're doing now great and how did you again go from there to actually getting land and building how was that process like yeah so um cabin is designed as a, a network of neighborhoods neighborhoods are independently owned and and operated properties. Each property ends up being pr pretty different and you know has a different story and a different structure to it. The story, you know, here is that I grew up spending a lot of time in the Hill Country. I, I actually grew up in Austin, but um, would come out here a lot on the weekends um, and grandparents were out here. Um, and so this actual original cabin that I'm sitting in is the only structure um, that was on this property is my grandparents' house. It was in the family and, and we didn't really have a use for it. And um, I, I was really interested in, you know, like I, I said, sort of going down this path of writing some science fiction. So I came out here, started spending some time. I knew nothing about how to build things, how to grow things, really how to do anything practical. <laughs> all, all I knew how to do was product manage software. So I came out here, you know, and just took it one day at a time and, and started building things. The first thing I built was a little fire pit, which is right outside the window here. And then I built a little deck, you know, and then started working on uh, another cabin. Um, and the, the little fire pit that I built, you know, just pulled stones out of the ground and, you know, built this thing. And that ended up, you know, a couple months later, I invited out a bunch of internet friends to kind of hang out for the week and, and you know, dream of, of big ideas. And that group sitting around that campfire uh, ended up being the group that said, Hey, you know, there's this new set of tools that has just come out for self-governance. We want to do, um, a creator residency program. And, you know, what if we got donations for this residency program and then gave everybody this token so that they could vote on who got to come out for the residencies. It seemed like this very simple, clear use case. Um, and, you know, next thing we, we knew it, it was a DAO and it was a, a thing that other people were starting to rally and show up and say, well, this is exciting. And Great. I'm, I'm curious because you said that at the point you didn't have a lot of experience practically building things. So can you give any entrepreneur who's, you know, mostly working on software and in the internet and the cloud, can you give us a sense or a template how to start building things in the real world and how to learn that? Yeah, I think it's really the same regardless of, you know, whether you're building software or, or you know, hardware or, or housing. Like, you just have to take a very iterative approach and, like, try to build small things that are sort of self-contained and work and then, like, do the next bigger thing and, and scale it up over time. Um, you know, in some ways, obviously, like, building physical things is um, harder <laughs> because... There's no copy paste. There's no undo. You know, there's no uh, like easy set of commands to, to try things. When you mess something up, you mess it up. And, you know, I think the hardest learning for me in, in starting to build physical stuff was that you know, the real world is, is not level. Um, like there's like the ground, the physical earth is just like extremely not level. Um, just getting things level and just getting things like, to the base layer where then you can build on top of them is often half the battle. If you, you look in like a city, I used to love when I was, you know, working in Instacart uh, in downtown San Francisco, watching skyscrapers go up. And what I didn't really understand at the time is like why it took so long to build the first part of it. You know, it's like half the time, it just looked like a pit. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, this big skyscraper goes up and that took like just getting out of the ground is so hard. Yeah. I, was building uh, two boats, like large wooden rafts in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Before that, I worked a bit in construction, actually, when I was in the military in Germany. Oh, cool. So there's something to that feeling, right? So creating these in real life experiences and the bonding that comes with it, it's just, it's exciting people more, I think, um, than building things online, at least for me. And there were also yeah. tons of other techies, data analysts, developers in our company that got really excited and got into building things in the real world, right? So I'm kind of wondering oh, why we don't do more of that or how we unlearned that, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I think this is something, you know, there are, I've talked to a couple of software engineers recently who um, 
post GPT are taking carpentry classes. Uh, and, and I think there's really something to it. Like you're right. It is way more rewarding to be able to look at a thing and have some sense of the physicality and the permanence of it after you build it, particularly if you did it with a group of people. Like software is so fickle. It's always in a constant state of decay. It's always like just barely working. And so have, having something where, you know, you can build a thing and then have it last for decades or centuries um, and have it be something that you can touch and use every day it is, I think, a big unlock for people. And certainly one of the most um, important culture building aspects of Cabin has been coming together in Build Week as groups and, and doing things like that. And I think we're going to see a whole lot more knowledge workers that, you know, want to start spending more of their time building real things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the challenge with physical infrastructure is the scalability of it too, right? So it's, you know, you can't just copy paste it, right? And you don't have zero marginal cost. So how do you think about scalability in your business model as Kevin? Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, we can talk about scalability in a couple different ways. Um, I'll, I'll start with the like actual physical construction, which is that, um, you know, I think a lot of sort of modern society and the current world in terms of, of economic structures is, is actually like very overly optimized for scalability and efficiency. Um, and it leads to things that seem scalable, but like actually end up not being very um, useful or like effective. Um, and so we, we take kind of the opposite approach. Like the, the classic architect is typically working on abstract designs in, um, you know, software models without ever having seen the physical site where the thing is going to be built. And, you know, if you look at suburban landscapes, if you look at, um, you know, the, the way that these big projects get built, they're typically just like, we're going to flatten everything. We're going to try to like level the whole place. And then we're just going to like build up as if we're building in virtual reality, you know, from this like blank canvas. Um, and that results in really bad landscapes and really bad built environments. And if you take the opposite approach, what, you know, Christopher Alexander would call a timeless way of building. And you actually just do everything much more organically. You build how cities used to be built, where you go and you stand out on the physical spot with people and you look at the exact grade of the land and you build with it instead of against it. Um, and you just build the next thing that you need one thing at a time instead of doing these grand master plans that look great on paper and great in models, but don't translate into a reality that humans can interact with effectively. Um, I think you can actually build much more useful human scale environments that more scalable in the sense that anyone can go out and do them. You don't need scale in, in order to, to build them. You, you can do it in this much more bottom up way. Um, so, so that's how we think about the physical building. You know, I think there's some some other components of like what this looks like from the perspective of building a, a you know a decentralized network that also has some interesting scalability aspects. But um, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But please continue when it comes to especially the multi-jurisdictional um, aspect of it, right? So Cabin is not only in Hill Country, right? That's just a starting point. There already has a couple of other jurisdictions and places. So where are you right now and where do you want to go? What kind of is the network city that you want to see built? Yeah, great question. So next week uh, on May 23rd, we are going to be launching the network city. And so we'll have our first uh, dozen or so neighborhoods that will be listed. Um, those neighborhoods will be managed via a um, token curated registry. So our community of token holders, governors, um, you know, will be able to vote on which properties become neighborhoods and then citizens will be able to access offers those properties. So if you want to, um, you know, just go for a paid co-living experience, you can do that. Uh, but there will also be, um, you know, definancialized work stay exchanges. So if you are a builder or you want to learn how to be a builder and go actually help build housing, build physical infrastructure or grow food or become a gatherer of people or create uh, content, art, et cetera, for uh, existing neighborhoods, these are all roles within our community. And we're building this polycentric governance structure where groups from within these roles have places to live within our network and can help actually build the physical cities as, uh, you know, as well. 
Mm-hmm. And where are the other cities besides the Hill Country? Yeah, so um, the initial launch group of neighborhoods is U.S.-centric, but uh, it's definitely global. So um, we'll have you know a number of locations uh, in the U.S., uh, including some really incredible properties like our um, Montana Base Camp in the Eastern Sierra, right near Yosemite in California. You know, beautiful property right on the Tetons in, in Idaho. You know, so so across some of the beautiful natural areas of the U.S., but also internationally. Uh, you know, near uh, a, a gorgeous beach in Costa Rica, um, uh, a regenerative um, agriculture and living Rico, a temple spot side in Portugal, Italy. There's just like an, a lot of beautiful places in the world that members of our community live and are interested in, in bringing other people out to um, be a part of. Great. So, so what's the typical customer or different customer groups that are under your umbrella, right? So is it kind of sedentary? Do you do they stay in one place? Do they move around? If yes, how often? Or how much of their life do they live in a, a cabin? Yeah, so our um, you know, initial cohort of community members are primarily you know, digitally nomadic people, um, kind of the core the core age range is is typically like 20s and 30s um and, and that's a, a great initial cohort you know that has the flexibility and interest in moving around to to different neighborhoods but you know we're building a city and so uh cities have incredible diversities of types of people um and so so we want to see that as well one area where we're already seeing a lot of interest is in family-centric neighborhoods um, we're seeing, you know, kind of the, the first cabin members that have kids. And it turns out that um, the uh, idiom, like it takes a village to raise a kid, is actually pretty true. And if, if you have a co-living community of other people to help raise kids together, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. Um, and the kind of bottleneck here has been education. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're getting to the point where you, you can essentially small group like even say 30 people storm raised that you know then can serve a one-room school style ai tutoring that can provide really customized educational plans for people so i think we're going to keep growing in the direction of families and then as we do that that will obviously means we'll have very young people in the communities also hopefully it means we'll start attracting much older people as well I'd love for you to talk more about the polycentric governance aspect of things, right? So what have you learned so far in practice and how does it also match with what you've been thinking about before um, with Eleanor Ostrom, for example? And feel free to wonk out a bit. I'm an economist. I've read Eleanor Ostrom. So. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so just for anyone who may be a little bit less familiar, um, polycentric governance is an idea that, that comes from um, Eleanor Ostrom and, and, you know, a sort of set of academic thinking for which, um, she, she won a Nobel prize. Um, and the, the idea is that, you know, ba- basically if you look at successful structures of human organizations over time, particularly in non-Western contexts, you see a, a, a way of managing common pool resources that, uh, does not rely on a single authority but instead relies on many diverse centers of partial authority, polycentric, many-centered governance. Um, and this is a really helpful model for thinking about, um, you know, o- online organizations and uh, in particular DAOs, um, you know, the kind of like classic first model of DAOs that we saw emerge was um, like a, a pretty standard, like, or, you know, basically a copy paste of the um, governance structure used by corporations in the U.S. Like we're going to have these token holders, they're going to vote on proposals, yes, no. Like it, it pretty like, um, you know, boring governance. Um, and I think what's actually much useful is to think about how we can use these new tools, blockchains, which provide communities with with self-sovereign programmable governance and allow networks of internet strangers to manage resources collectively and transparently, 
to sort of go back to the future and to think about um, using these uh, these tools at small scales in ways that maybe more closely mimic some of the ways that groups of humans have been collectively managing resources in small groups, um, you know, for thousands of years. Um, and so what, uh, I, th this can feel a little bit abstract. So let me try to make it really tangible in the context of Cabin. At Cabin, we have a governance token, which is called Cabin. Um, and that is used for, um, you know, representing voting power and community decisions over a shared treasury like most DAOs. But in addition to that, um, we view the token as a way to, to play polycentric governance games with, with an in-game currency. Um, and so our city directory, which, you know, determines which neighborhoods are listed inside of our city limits, each neighborhood is its own, you know, center of governance, its own, um, autonomous unit within the network. Um, and then we collectively curate that list of, um, of neighborhoods, you know, the curated registry, um, also mentioned the various roles within cabin things like builders naturalists creators gatherers etc these are each managed by a self-governing pods okay again many centers um that have their own sort of area of responsibility and governance uh by, by guilds another example is our citizenship which is determines who has access to our co-living network um it's a subscription membership but it's managed through a web of trust vouching system so an existing citizen to vouch for you in order to become a citizen. So what you can see here are these sort of multiple layers of overlapping um, forms of power distribution, you know, with with different structures and different contexts. Um, and, and I think that this is the kind of natural way for human governance structures to evolve bottom up. Yeah, yeah. Um, correct me if how you read Elena Ostrom, but. What I read from her is she's kind of proposing this alternative between two different things, right? So when you have a problem with common pool resources, so, um, you know, one person is taking too much and everyone has the incentive to take too much. So there's not enough for everyone. So the one solution is you have like a Leviathan state, right? Everyone gives away their power and we're all under the mercy of this one ruler, right? Which is kind of a solution, right? And Pop said, oh, that person has the incentive to everyone. Has, no, that's the one. And the other is sort of the Kosian propertarian um, pole, right? So property rights are just very clear. And when property rights are very clear, then people can negotiate externalities away much more easily, right? So, um, you know, neither of these two. So, and, and she's just saying, hey, this is not how the world actually works. Like neither of these two extremes have ever or in any form existed or are possible to some. So she's saying there's all these other ways, like norms, um, for example, she's very strong on norms that are governing how people behave. And there's all sorts of these different games that people play to sort of um, to solve these problems as they arise instead of just this one macro solution, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so her Nobel Prize lecture was called Beyond Markets and States, Polycentric Governance of Complex Economic Systems. And I think that that dichotomy you just laid out is, is exactly it. Markets on one side, states on the other. And so much of our political discourse, political theory, you know, basically since the Enlightenment has been entirely wrapped up in this left-right dichotomy and this like state market dichotomy, what Ostrom showed is that uh, particularly when when you can get together smaller groups of people to coordinate, when you're not thinking about these like macro scales of millions or hundreds of millions of people in, you know, existing nation state structures, which is what, um, you know, post-enlightenment thinkers were solving for, like how do we transition from kingdoms to nation states? Um, they were inherently working within the framework of you know, giant groups of people and these like sort of big macro forces. And I think what Eleanor Ostrom showed is that, um, well, if you can actually find ways to just create bottom-up political structures with much smaller groups of people who who can coordinate in these um, more purpose-built uh, bespoke ways, you, you can do things very differently. And this is exactly what blockchains now enable us to do. This is the big unlock is that um, blockchains are a new kind of Leviathan. We can go from, you know, this world of um, kingdoms and nation states as the only sort of known and accepted leviathans 
to this new bottom-up Leviathan that provides capture-resistant organizational structures at any scale you want, even starting with just a couple people on a multi-sig. Um, and that is a big unlock in terms of the you know type of programmable games that we can now build. Mm -hmm. so, so in what ways does that apply to uh, property or usage of land and real estate or ownership, right? Because... You know, on the one extreme, you could be like a Ciudad Morazan, which we had in this episode, the Honduran um, city, and it's all just owned by one landlord, right? So everything else inside is like a free market, but there's only one landowner, right? Versus Prospera, which is kind of more the market-based proprietarian model, right? So how does it work for you? Who's kind of the owner of the land and how is ownership or use or decisions are made who can use the land for what purposes or something like that? Yeah, it's a great question because it's really at the core of the spot where um, post-enlightenment political philosophy starts. Like if you go back and read Rousseau's social contract, um, he starts out with an explicit description, um, you know, the origin of political power being about property rights and about staking off a piece of land and saying, this is mine. And he sort of, says like, oh, they, this is like the root of all evil, or, or at least like the root of, of sort of all of how, you know, we, we think about sovereignty. Um, and I think what's important again, is that um, we are actually stick to the question. And we are building a network that, you know, is inherently in multiple places at the same time. And each of those independent places can be governed in its own autonomous way. We don't um, have a single perspective about whether there's, you know, a, a sort of Morazan style, like single property owner for a neighborhood in the network, or, you know, whether it is collectively managed as a DAO with a token, um, you know, or anything in between. Any of these things can, can be a neighborhood within Cabin. And our job um, as a, a network is to curate those neighborhoods and to decide, you know, as a community, which ones you think there's values. I think what we're going to see is that, you know, this means there's going to be a lot of cool experiments. Like I'm excited for people to try out harbinger tax-based structures. You know, that's something that um, people in, in sort of the, uh, our, our corner of uh, the crypto world like to talk about a lot. It could be a really interesting model. Um, it also probably is going to like have all sorts of unforeseen problems. And so um, rather than putting a stake in the ground and saying like this style of property ownership structure um, is the, the one true way, um, you know, we're taking a much more open-ended approach to curating a network of different styles. Yeah, yeah. And you also talk a bit, so you found an interesting way to buy or use land in very specific locations that if I remember correctly, I excluded from zoning restrictions, right? Can you talk a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, Neighborhood Zero, uh, which is where I am right now, um, is in an unincorporated part of the Texas Hill Country. Um, and so, you know, our, our community is primarily interested in co-living together in places where we have high-speed internet and access to nature. And the big change here is that things like better Starlink satellite internet, um, you know, solar power, et cetera, have really opened up the map. And then of course, you know, socially and, and economically remote work and, and they increase in people's flexibility in terms of where they can live have meant that now people don't have to just go to cities for the typical um, agglomerated job markets, which, which is what cities have historically been for. So what this means is there's now, you know, a wide open map where um, if, if you, like me, like to be in nature and you still want to do um, plugged in knowledge work, but you want to do it from a place where you can walk outside into the woods, that's now an option. And huge ancillary benefit of this is that, you know, not only do you, do you have the access to nature, um, you can do it in areas where there aren't existing city regulatory structures. If you look at our existing cities right now, you know, basically they're stagnating because there are NIMBYs and, you know, other interests within cities who are making it impossible to build anything. And so if you come out to unincorporated areas in nature, you have a lot more flexibility in, and less regulation in terms of what you can build. What specifically do you have less regulation in? Is it specifically applying to what you can build or are there also kind of other legal 
a carve-outs that you can get? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think um, we'll see over time, like, uh, and and this is probably the biggest difference between how we think about network cities and, uh, you know, how, how some other folks think about network state um, and, and maybe even think like special economic zones um, is that, you know, that the latter, the, the network states, the special economic zone are trying to create um, significant carve outs that give them like proximate sovereignty over physical territory. Um, and that that's like, you know, typically what states do. That's a really hard thing to get. Um, and has been a very slow moving process, you know, for, for a lot of these projects, but enables potentially, um, you know, a much wider range of things you can do. We're, what we're trying to do is actually um, more narrow and specific than that, which is we're, we're just saying we're, we're not trying to, you know, create totally independent sovereign systems. We're trying to create interdependent systems. And that's what cities really are, is, is interdependent economic you know, and political structures built on top of existing, you know, legal systems. Um, but what they have, what cities have is the most important part of, um, you know, control, which is basically control over the built environment, what you can actually build and, and you know, how you can live. So an example here, um, uh, co-living, you know, which is, is at the root of cabin, but also just uh, any anybody who wants to build a network city or a network state needs to actually live together at some point. Do you, if you want to co-live in a place like San Francisco or you want to co-live in New York, they're extremely hostile to it. Um, technically speaking, any group of more than four, I believe, unrelated people living in New York is not allowed, which is insane. They literally are regulating who you can live with. And San Francisco, in some ways, is even more restrained and more hostile to co-living, even though it's, it's you know, one of the big hubs of co-living. Um, there's all sorts of things about, you know, how tenant rights make it very challenging to remove someone from a community that that is not uh, a good member of that community. We're not, like, trying to do crazy innovations on basic uh, civil law structures. All we're trying to do is just build the things we want to build and live in the way we want to live. And it turns out municipal regulations cover most of that. I wonder what's your takeaway from Zuzalu, right? So we met again in Zuzalu, I think two or three weeks ago. And it's like a pop-up city by Vitalik Buterin. It has an effective size of like 100 and 200 people. And what I found interesting was that that was kind of enough to have enough of a density of people to that you want to hang out with, right? So it's a very specific group, like very Web3, Ethereum, longevity, biotech, network states, right? But it was very easy to just randomly run into someone and you had a lot in common to talk about or to work on. I was like too much, right? So, but the interesting thing was you don't need a city of millions to get to that level of kind of density of people you want to hang out with and acculturate with. So that was an interesting learning. Anything else you you'd ha you learned or that you could add on top of that? Yeah, certainly. So, so first of all, just to touch on the question of density, because I think that is a crucially important one. And um, actually, that that exact thing you just said is is the original same insight from the first piece, you know, that I wrote in March of twenty one about decentralized cities, um, which was drawing on Jeffrey West's work. Um, Jeffrey West was uh, an academic who um, you know, ran the Santa Fe Institute and, and thought a lot about complexity. He was a physicist by background, but got very interested in biology and then in cities. And what he showed was that um, cities were you know, basically places with densities that created these positive feedback loops like, like wages and, and creativity. Um, and that you know, interesting people attract more interesting people. But he was also very clear that when you think of cities, you, know, you think of the, the boulevards of Paris, the Eiffel Tower, the skyscrapers of New York, but that's just the stage. And what actually is at the core of it is the, the density of interesting people and creative ideas. And this is the core insight you know, about network cities, which is that uh, there are you know, thousands of people that like, and organize into these easily identifiable tribes um, and units that then can sort of create that artificial density. And so you you can, you know, basically get the same benefits when, when you're living in New York, you're only actually interacting with like, like 100, 200 people, like you said, 
but you're able to draw from that big population. And you can do the same thing with the internet. You can draw from that big population of, you know, millions of people and then find the, the hundred or, or, you know, thousand um, online that, that then allow you to get that same density in person. Yeah, that was a big, big learning. I guess we, I can talk a little bit more about um, Zuzulu since I, I don't know that I directly answered your question there. I think it was a great experiment uh, for a couple of reasons. For, first of all, you know, just the more people that are being exposed to some of these ideas and not just the ideas, but the actual like physical lived experience of being a part of it, um, you know, the better. Um, I, I think that the structure that worked well for Zuzulu that also, uh, you know, something we've noticed in, in cabin neighborhoods and experiences is that there were some people who were residents staying there for the whole two months and other people who were sort of coming in for a week for, for kind of a specific conference focus. That style of having like a more permanent base of, of longer term residents and then, you know, some like new energy being injected in shorter term basis, I think is pretty crucial for on network cities operate among the biggest changes that you get from a network city. Uh, and so I think that was was good to see in practice. I also think that it was very helpful to see and to a range of people from across this decade plus of, of city building experience because I think there was kind of like, um, you know, an, an older guard of folks uh, at Zuzulu who, you know, for the new cities network state week who someone had been chipping away at this problem for years. And I think generally taking much more of the like sovereignty first, uh, you know, top down, like let's build a new special economic zone or a new city from scratch approach. Um, and then I think there was kind of a newer wave of people who are building these more bottom-up community first approaches. And, um, you know, that is obviously the side of the equation that I come from and, and, and am most excited about. Um, but it was very helpful to see that sort of cross-pollination from these two sides and to understand, you know, which, which approaches from each one we can draw on. Yeah, that was also exactly my goal with the New Cities and Network States conference, because uh, I think these are two sides of the same coin that can learn a lot from each other, right? So like our friends from Afropolitan and Praxis, for example, they're learning that they need to get into negotiations with governments. Things take very long and, you know, building physical infrastructure is very challenging. You know, some of the cities, new urbanism folks, they already know that. But at the same time, they're lacking a bit kind of the, the community-driven, the sort of storytelling, branding, new tech aspect of sort of the new network states um, side of things, right? With that said, or as a founding, I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about your reading of Balaji's network states. So uh, at the talk you gave, you had some very pointed critiques of it, of where you found it's um it's it's different in practice or or it's sort of rough around the edges yeah absolutely so i'll start with a like disclaimer here which is i have a lot of respect for for um balaji and um particularly his like predictions uh and and his ability to be non-consensus and you know provide like measurable predictions and and put skin in the game i i come at this from the perspective of um perhaps like a, a narcissism of small differences in uh, how, you know, we think about network cities versus how, how he thinks about network states. But I also do think those differences are really important. And um, I, I do think that, you know, what we're building a cabin has some clear both structural and ideological differences from Ambology's approach. Um, so, you know, the kind of like most concise version of this that, that I think I can provide is, is essentially a two by two matrix. Um, and so imagine a two by two matrix where on one side you have single locations and networks of locations. And then on the other side, you have L1 territorial sovereignty, and then let's call it like layer twos, you know, built on top of existing states. And so, uh, I, I think, you know, what the internet unlocked was the move from sort of like single location centric city and state structures, more traditional nation states and, and cities to networks of locations. And then, you know, within the context of networks of locations um, and the, the ability to, you know, build these networks online and on chain, you have Balaji's idea of network states and what we think of as network cities. And I think the difference here is that a, a network state is inherently trying to do what states do, which is to create territorial sovereignty, you know, which ultimately typically means a, a monopoly on violence over physical space. 
in some capacity. What, what we're much more interested in with, with network cities, like I mentioned, is building interdependent systems on top of existing legal structures like cities do, you know, which, which we sort of think of as the, um, the L2s. We're not trying to provide like base level security like Ethereum. We're trying to provide, you know, more, more scalable uh, uh, layer on top of that. Um, and, and so that's kind of maybe the, the fundamental difference. You know, one thing that's very helpful about the network state is that Bology provided a really precise set of comma-separated um, terms that he uses to describe a network state. And so, you know, if you want, we can, we can sort of dive in and unpack some of those in, in more detail as well. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, what I like about it or what I found very useful is this concept of like a one commandment moral innovation. You also have a critique of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I guess actually, but before I dive into some of these critiques, I'll, I'll take one more step back about, you know, the, the book, The Network State versus the idea of The Network State. I think it's really important to separate out these two things. The book, The Network State, you know, has like a couple, um, basically like one chapter that's really about defining a network state in Bology's terms. And then like a whole lot of kind of like the world according to Bology. Um, and that's interesting. Like I enjoyed reading that, but uh, I, I think like a lot of people read some of the other chapters and think that they're about network states when, when really they're about like a Bologian idea of network states or even just like a Bologian political philosophy. The nice thing about network cities and network states is we don't all have to have the exact same political ideology um, or philosophy. We, we can have a plurality of these things. That's like a first important sort of meta disclaimer about the idea. When, when we then dive in and talk specifically about, you know, network state as the actual, you know, one sentence definition that, that Bology provides, um, there's a couple of areas where, you know, we, we have different approaches. And the first one you mentioned is this idea of one, one commandment. Um, so, you know, in the network state, there's this idea that, that you have to build your community around sort of one moral innovation, one commandment. We disagree with that. Um, you know, at Cabin, I think what we've found is that it's not a very practical way to build a community. And we try to build like real tangible communities. Um, nobody just wants to live in a world that like keto only, like everybody has to be keto or like, you know, everybody has to like work out all the time. Th those are like good hobbies. Those are good ways of like identifying people you might want to like spend some time with at the gym. They're not good ways of defining new societies. And so instead of, you know, one commandment, we, we like to talk about several suggestions. The way to do this is actually sort of the opposite of the way that anthology puts forward. It's not like define the one commandment and then attract all the other people who want to be keto only and design their whole life around that. It's like de design a community around a group of people, you know, with some like general shared ideas of, of what new ways of living could look like start to build those new ways of living and then let your value set emerge from that community process of actually building the thing and and through that process come up with the you know several suggestions that that define how you screen people into joining that community yeah i would compare it with the actually the ethereum or web3 approach right so mm. there were several like town halls including vitalik and so he doesn't like the idea or to be pushed to like define what Zuzalu is, right? Or have like this guiding one moral innovation or commandment. He wants it kind of to kind of naturally emerge from the community. Where do we go next? Or what do we do next? And I'm kind of a bit torn, right? On the one hand, I kind of like that sort of that open endedness of it. On the other hand, I do also see the power and, you know, it's something that's very hard to do. And I think the keto thing is not super helpful because tries to give an example that's supposed to be easy, but it sort of confuses people a little bit because how powerful is that really to make people live together? But I was thinking, what if Suzalu or, or, or I had a conversation with Alison Dittman from the Foresight Institute, and it seemed to me that they have like this one commandment almost, I'm not, and it's kind of always go to the new frontier, right? So as soon as something is already in the mainstream, any AI or longevity, biotech, whatever, we go into the next thing. Right. And I think there is a power to having sort of this one North Star, even if it takes a very long time to kind of figure out what it is or to develop the right language around it. But maybe it does help to kind of find that one essence. And I was thinking maybe Zuzalu could also be that, just kind of always looking for the new frontier, right? 
Yeah, no, I, I want to be clear. Like, I think moral innovations are an important part of building new societies. I, I think it's more like a, a causality flip here um, in terms of how to find those moral innovations and how to develop them. Like in our case, I think, um, you know, we, we tend to think that like the best moral innovations are, are also pretty practical ones. Like something we talk about a lot at Cabin is, um, you know, building these communities from the ground up in a way where we can develop 10x cheaper and better housing options and that we can start to address some of the kind of fundamental issues with American like cost disease, where you see the basics of food, housing, healthcare, childcare, education have all continued to explode in cost over time, while, you know, many other things have gotten cheaper. I think that serves as a seed for us to consider how can we practically solve some of those problems and thus develop, you know, moral innovations that can make people's lives better. But it comes from the perspective of like, starting with solving a problem as a group and then like growing the moral innovations versus like putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is the one thing we all stand for. And if you don't dedicate your whole life to this one thing, you know, don't, don't come here. Like it's the same thing that you see a lot in online communities where people show up on day one and they're like, let's write a constitution. And they completely forget that the constitution was a document that came a whole lot later, you know, after um, a Declaration of Independence and uh, an Articles of Confederation and a bunch of failed experiments and a bunch of continental congresses and you know, this whole like messy decade of, of trying to actually practically figure things out before you codify them. That makes tons of sense. So let's go to that map or this two by two concept that I put forward. So my goal with that was to give people an overview of the space. So I put forward some categories, how I see the space, sort of new cities and network states. And I put it kind of in a two by two matrix, again, with the goal to have like a snapshot understanding. So I'm going to lay it out and then you can poke holes in it. So the idea is to distinguish between a legal hard fork and a legal soft fork, right? So soft fork is what you described so you don't need to build like a new legal system right so you can work off of existing jurisdictions or countries and the hard fork seeks just a higher degree of legal autonomy right so prospera or sort of special economic zones or something like that they want sort of some degree of legal autonomy not sovereignty i don't like the idea of sovereignty myself right i also would criticize that in balaji I think individuals are sovereign, but, you know, countries shouldn't or whatever. Um, and the other is whether or not land development is at the core um, or you already have land development going on, right? And I put this together kind of to see, to, to have these four different clusters. So that on the one hand, you don't have land development, nor, and you have kind of a, you don't need a new legal structure. This is kind of generic DAOs or online communities, right? And then you have network states. So these do want or aim to have kind of a more legal hard fork, right? So Afropolitan praxis, these explicitly want or have it as the core of their goals to have their own legal systems and governance, right? So their own passports, their own embassies and things like that. Then you have co-living, right? So you don't require the high degree of legal autonomy, but you're using that to innovate when it comes to governance, when it comes to innovating or how to um, shape the build world, right? And then you have startup cities, which kind of have a legal hard fork and sort of have already ongoing land development, right? So this is kind of the four, the two by two and how I distinguish these concepts. What's your critique of that model? Yeah, I, I like that model. I think those are definitely two useful spectra on this kind of like emerging world that, that we're operating in. So my critique uh, is maybe a couple fold. You know, the, the, the first one is maybe about some of the like specific placement of individual organizations on that industry landscape that, that you put out. Um, and then my, my kind of more general one is about the label of the, you know, category cabin falls into, which, um, you know, you, you call co-living and it, that's not wrong. Cabin, uh, is, is doing co-living. What I find like maybe a little bit ironic about that and, and, you know, that I think points to maybe a broader critique of the network state. If you aren't actually co-living with people, 
then is what you have even remotely something that could be considered a, a city or a state? Like if you aren't actually taking the step of living with other humans who share your values and want to build a similar world, then you're just talking about a thing. You don't, you haven't actually done anything. And I think this is at the core of, um, you know, maybe part of Cabin's ideology is that we are um, trying to build something deeply practical. And while it's great to, you know, think about sort of pie in the sky philosophy or, or ideology, um, none of this stuff really matters until it's in practice. And so, uh, you know, I, I think something that our entire industry could use a dose of is a little more of the uh, feedback loop of the practical reality of trying to get together with things, with people and do things, because that's what's hard. And that's what actually informs the philosophy of ideology. Yeah, that's always the first misunderstanding I encounter from people that, you know, have might have read or heard about the network state as a concept. For them, it's still kind of in like online community stage. It was like, um, no, we want to build cities. We want to live together, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think like we could unpack some of the um, like other specific placements here. I think, um, for instance, Zuzulu, you, you have in the co-living category. It maybe is like on the edge of that, but a two-month experience of, of spending time together in a pre-built environment where you're, where you're mostly like eating at restaurants and uh, that is sort of like a border, that's like maybe a co-living experience, but I, I wouldn't consider that to be, you know, like real long-term co-living. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, like for, you know, similarly, I, I think in many ways, you know, Burning Man, which you also have in this category, is one of the best examples of like pop-up city building. Um, it actually is built from the ground up in a, a pretty incredible decentralized way. And, and so I would put that maybe in like a pop-up city um, framework, but I, I wouldn't consider it to be co-living. You know, it's like, it's a, it's, it's really more of a festival. I think we can uh, like debate kind of some of the lines here. Balaji has another interesting framework for cloud formation that sort of looks at the number of people and that length of time that they're spending together as one way to think about this. Yeah, Vitalik also put that together. So it's definitely load, it's definitely rough around the edges and definitely lots to, to improve on or to think about. But yeah, with some of the placement, I had like a very specific illustration that I wanted to make, but these categories can be broader or more narrow. Right. So, and we're in such a small and emerging space, right? So if you kind of total out the funding we have, like as an industry, it might be in like 300 to 500 million or something, right? So this is really just starting, right? So this is something that is, um, it's not even sure yet if we're becoming an industry, right? So I think we're in a space that's just very ambitious and maybe we've become something very big and I think very good news can accelerate it quickly. Um, but you know, we still have to prove that we can build viable business models and things like that, right? And can prove that we can build lasting structures, right? Because the kinds of structures we're competing with are hundreds of years old and they have lots of experience in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, you know, anyone should expect that this kind of thing will happen overnight. I think that's another value that we try to hold dear at when is taking a long-term mindset. If you're interested in flipping something into a, a quick win, uh, this is like absolutely not the, the space to be in. Uh, you know, if you're willing to spend um, 50 years grinding on it, I think, uh, for instance, Prospero, where you are now, you know, they've been at this for what, a decade at least, and you know, are just starting to see the fruits of, of that decade of labor. And so this is, is not something that happens overnight. I was also wondering sort of the long-term or durability of something, how did you create that, right? Because I was reading this interesting book once that was looking at different forms of organization and like put the state and the church in one bracket, right? And the argument it made is, yeah, these structures are like stale, these are slow, these are authoritarian and top-down and everything like that, but they're optimizing for, for durability, right? So the whole idea is, as a minister or a cardinal or something like that is independent of you as a person, right? So it outlasts and explicitly removes sort of the personality component, right? So the structure and the ideology is kind of 
so strongly written in stone, like the sovereignty of the state and of the nation and sort of the sanctitude or of the word of the holy, the holy book or something like that, that's just optimized for durability. I think we're competing against something very big that humans had over hundreds and thousands of years. And I wonder what, what else do we need to do or what do we need to, do we need to think of to provide real alternatives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that things that have longevity are things that operate as living systems, things that have evolution built into them, you know, things that have adaptability and resiliency built into them. Um, and so those are the sort of principles that I think you can design for. So what, what types of structures, you know, can, can you build that have those principles baked in? Culture is, is obviously an important one. That's sort of the like social human interaction layer of longevity. E economic structures can, can have this sort of complex adaptive evolutionary capability. Um, and, you know, governance structures can, can too. Um, and when you combine those three things together, um, you know, culture, economy, and governance, I think that package and, and nailing each of those in the context of, of sort of explicitly designed resilient systems is what gets you a city. And cities are, you know, one of the most resilient things. Like it's very hard to um, kill a city. Like, it, you know, like terrible things can happen in cities and, and they'll get rebuilt because they, they have these three factors. Uh, you know, that have typically been designed in ways that promote evolutionary resilience. Great. Anything else that we'd like to talk about, but we haven't talked about yet to understand the contribution you're making to this movement? Where do you want to go with Kevin and what should listeners excite about or contribute to what you're building? Yeah, what we, you know, try to do is, is take this uh, practical uh, approach. Um, you know, another thing that we talked about at, at Zuzulu, um, was the idea of people who have never hosted a dinner party wanting to start network stage. I would just encourage anybody who's interested in, in going down this path to think about it, taking this very human centric approach and, and starting with small scales where we can, you know, test out not governance in some grand ideological sense, but first in the sense of like, how do we cook dinner and, and clean up the dishes together? Then we can, we can start to scale up from there. I think there's something called golf law, which is about how complex systems of the type I'm describing that have this evolutionary resilience. Um, you, you can't build them top down. They don't work. You can't design and manifest uh, a complex adaptive system. You have to literally grow it, you know, from uh, a, a very small, simple system to start. It's something we're, we're trying to do, uh, and it's something that I, I hope to see a lot more projects taking very practical, tangible steps towards doing, because that's the hard part, is actually getting together with other humans and dealing with the day-to-day -day realities of, of living together. And if we can't figure that out, we certainly can't figure the rest of it out. Um, and so I, I hope to see a, a whole lot more experiments in that philosophy in the coming years. Yeah, before you crowdfund territory, crowdfund brunch. Exactly. Yes. John, I think this was fantastic. I just loved how we started with sort of a community of builders and building things in the real world. I think you've given our listeners really a good mental image or picture or some really actual steps in your own firsthand experience that hopefully is a call to action for more of us and more listeners to build things in the real world, because I think that is really what's missing. And that's what I'm in for right, when it comes to this trend, right? I don't want to sit behind a screen all day, right? I want to get out there into nature. If I want to touch the grass, I want to touch sort of the woods that we're building on and sit and wander and walk in nature just in the hill country where you are. And I loved our deeper discussion about governance, about the network states. So I think this was really massive amount of insights that you've collected in working on Kevin. Any concluding thoughts from your side or is there any shout outs that you want to give or any call to action you want to give listeners on the way? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for saying all that. And if any of that resonated with you listening at, at home, you can check out Cabin. Our website is cabin.city. Uh, that's also our, our social handles uh, at cabin.city spelled out. We'd love to 
find a way to get you out to a neighborhood to co-live with us, to come build with us, to grow with us. Um, or you have your, your own dreams that are different from what we're doing. I'd still love to do about those. I think one thing that's been really exciting about this emerging ecosystem is, is how collaborative it is. And so I would love to pay it forward to any other founders or builders who have their own dream of new cities. If you have those, please reach out to me. My, my DMs are open on Twitter at Jonathan Hillis. Would love to chat. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a really great conversation. Order like a champ at Raisin Cane's. With tailgates of hand-battered chicken fingers and cane sauce and jugs of freshly made tea and lemonade, you can guarantee victory for every game day meal. Raisin Cane's Chicken Fingers, one love. Order online or on our app.